Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, I've probably mentioned before that uh, I am a big fan of the horror writer H.P. Lovecraft. Yes, you have. Yeah, I, um, I, pro- I think I discovered Lovecraft for myself back in 96. I was, uh, I was a junior in high school. The uh, Tool album Anima had just uh, hit the stores, and then I suddenly discovered this this brand new horror writer in the horror section at Barnes & Noble or somewhere in Huntsville, Alabama. And uh, and up to that point, I'd read a lot of Stephen King. You know, I was really into Tolkien, uh, you know, sort of the, the normal assortment of, of horror and sci-fi. And, you know, I'd read Dune for the first time. But then I found this this curious book on the shelf, and it was just the most imaginative, the, the freshest, the most, to, to me, the most cutting-edge uh, horror fiction I'd ever read, and, which, and I shortly... Discover that this was there was nothing new about it at all. This was this was uh, stuff from the the early twentieth century that and the author had been dead for decades. Yeah, and what's interesting about this is that H.P. Lovecraft went on to influence all the writers that you just mentioned, right? So Stephen King, also Neil Gaiman, uh, just a whole host of writers, science fiction writers, horror writers. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft kind of created the blueprint for that. Yeah, this, this, this idea of sort of, uh, of cosmic dread of humanity, uh, sort of adrift in an uh, immoral universe that he can barely understand. I mean, the, the, the notes of, of Lovecraftian horror do resonate just throughout, certainly throughout horror, but also into science fiction, into fantasy, into our pop culture. We've gotten to the point where you, uh, you're, you're going to see Cthulhu shirts and Cthulhu plush dolls as you walk down the store and through the mall. Yeah, now Cthulhu, for, for anybody who is not familiar with Cthulhu, we have an article called How Cthulhu Works. And that's not actually how you pronounce Cthulhu, and we'll get to that later. But mm-hmm. Cthulhu um, is this kind of deep-sea creature. And Lovecraft describes it as a cross between like an octopus, a dragon, or this kind of human-like or anthropomorphic creature. So Cthulhu is, is asleep deep down in the ocean and, and transmitting thoughts to all those other dreamers out there, those humans who have sort of a creative spark to them. That's the idea of Cthulhu. So you see these little plushy Cthulhu dolls, which is really funny because the actual Cthulhu is supposed to be frightening and horrific. Yeah, my my son actually has one of the plush dolls, and uh, he largely ignores it, but once he flew it around the house. But but yeah, for me, it kind of, uh, it does take away from the, the power of the uh, of the idea and uh, and and as we'll, we'll discuss later, was, this was actually a, a minor figure in Lovecraft's writing. There are far more interesting, far more complex, far more terrifying entities that he created. But this is the one that's really taken off and kind of serves as a, an overall symbol of of what what he did and the kind of the, the worlds that he created. Yeah, but people don't realize that a lot of our understanding of aliens and in some ways the you know the cosmos and other Extra, uh, extraterrestrial life forms is based on Lovecraft's ideas about the world. I mean, that permeates a lot of fiction, a lot of movies. All right, so just to to, to refresh and to uh, and to inform anyone who's not familiar with Lovecraft at all, H.P. Lovecraft was born on August twentieth, eighteen ninety, in Providence, Rhode Island, and uh, he he went on to become uh, a very important American pulp author. Uh, again, he had a profound influence on horror fiction and pop culture as a whole, mostly after his death. And he died uh, fairly young from uh, cancer of the small intestines at the age of 46, still at the height of his literary powers. Um, yet despite this relatively short writing career, you know, immense impact, um, he his work just seethes with this uh, with this new form of supernatural menace, one that's grounded in the the darker unknowns of ancient myth cycles, but also affixed to uh, humanity's increasing scientific understanding of the cosmos in the early 20th century. So we're talking about Darwin's evolution, Einstein's relativity, quantum physics, all of this playing into into his writing, and his in his works ground humanity in this. Amoral universe where where vain humanity uh, understands less than it thinks it does about its origins, about its ultimate fate, and so we end up with this sort of loose idea of of of, of human civilization residing in a tidal pool of reasoning, and beyond which there's just this endless ocean of of madness and chaos, or at least it's madness and chaos to our our limited ability to just take it all in. So. 
his stories generally involve somebody coming to terms with these kind of revelations and mm-hmm. generally g- generally going at least a little bit insane with them and uh, yeah. and and it's and it's 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 all about the 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 power of the unknown to inspire us certainly as a reader uh, but also to horrify us as well Right. Uh, this is from the Science Fiction and Fantasy Stack Exchange. Because, by the way, I'm new to the HP Lovecraft world. Of course, I've known about it. But this is a sort of crash course in HP Lovecraft for me. So when I was looking at information on this, the, the Stack Exchange said the main focus of Lovecraft's works are indeed aliens. As we mentioned, lots and lots of aliens. Some visited Earth and lived on it. Some battled between them, themselves. Some built cities, as we'll discuss later in one of the novellas. Some destroyed cities. Some created civilizations, some of which collapsed and left ruins behind them. Some left. Some of these aliens are sleeping, like Cthulhu. Some are well awake and some are good, some are evil, some are neutral, which is a really, that's kind of a big idea then, yeah. right? During this time period that you could have this other being that would be neutral, that didn't care about the human beings, because this is way outside of the human experience and with, in which we are constantly anthropomorphizing everything. Yeah, and that's key because it's certainly living in an age of, of Star Trek and in, in living in the shadow of Star Trek where you see just all these anthropomorphized visions of what aliens would be. Like what, what are aliens? They're just humans with funny ripples on their head for the most part. I know there's some more out there, uh, alien extraterrestrial ideas in Star Trek's universe, but for the most part, everything's pretty human. And, uh, and certainly at the, at the time, uh, Lovecraft's writing, a lot of the more popular science fiction, uh, you know, you look at, uh, look at some of the, like the Mars fiction that was mm-hmm. out there, et cetera, you see very human ideas of what aliens would be like, and it's, it's based in the, the pulp, uh, uh, dichotomy of good and evil. So you have good aliens and bad aliens. And that's a lot of fun. Nobody's saying you shouldn't or can't enjoy that. But Lovecraft brought in this Id- idea of, of aliens that were very, uh, inhuman. Uh, that, and, and certainly, as we've discussed before, if we're to try and figure out what life would consist of elsewhere in the universe, uh, we we can only base our ideas on our terrestrial model. But our terrestrial model is far more uh, varied and far 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 richer than just the human form. And Lovecraft was was tuned into that because he was a, a he was very into the the science literature of the day, yeah. and he he was aware that the biodiversity on Earth could get very strange. That's what I love about it, because he did introduce this idea of an extraterrestrial that looked nothing like us, that didn't care about us, that was outside of, let's look at it this way, the Christian Judeo experience, right? Mm -hmm. And in a very scientific way, as you say, he is looking at these creatures in, in a very scientific way, saying, just like the cosmos out there and the elements in it, Perhaps there is not a care truly about humans. Humans are just another organism yeah. that happen to be on this earth. And that is a very, I mean, that is kind of a radical idea uh, during that time period. Yeah, indeed. Uh, one of my favorite stories that he wrote, and this was one that he wrote later in life when he was, again, just really firing on all cylinders, is uh, The Whisperer in Darkness, which concerns this idea that there are extraterrestrial beings that have been visiting Earth for quite some time. They're carrying out their own business here. They really don't care about humans. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, as humans become more and more technically advanced, as they they multiply and cover more corners of the globe uh, and and just more of the, the, the planet Earth, there's increased possibility that we run into them. And and if they keep running into us, then they're going to probably have to wipe us out just just in order to keep carrying on their uh, their own projects here on the earth which is is again kind of a scary concept because it's the idea that humanity is not important in a cosmic sense and uh, and that there could be aliens that are visiting that uh, that have no interest in humanity at all we're just a byproduct now that's somewhat the trope of one of his novellas at the mountains of madness mm-hmm. and when i started to read that i thought immediately of prometheus Oh uh, yeah. And I thought, wow, those that's some far reaching tentacles, right? Because of course that that has colored the the whole alien franchise, right? Mm-hmm. But Prometheus, if you guys remember, and we did an episode on Prometheus, uh, we're talking about uh, Elizabeth Shaw and Charles Holloway that the characters in it, they discover a star map among the remnants of several ancient earth cultures. And they want to seek the origins of humanity. And so they set out on this adventure uh, to the star system to try to find the elder ones, the old ones. This is very much, and I don't want to do any sort of uh, 
plot spoilers here, but if you look at the Mountains of Madness, you will see the same sort of plot uh, points in there. And it's amazing to see the parallels there, even though so much time has passed. Yeah, if, if I remember correctly, Guillermo del Toro, who's been wanting to make a, a film adaptation of the, of, uh, at the Mountains of Madness for some time, uh, registered some disappointment when mm-hmm. Prometheus came out because he said, well, this means I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to be able to, to get to make my, uh, Mountains of Madness movie for, you know, for an, another, you know, decade or so because they just hit some of the major plot points. Yeah, which has got to be really frustrating. But I will say I hope that he makes that movie because if anybody's ever seen Hellboy or Pan's Labyrinth, then you know that this is a director who brings just this, this incredible visual element to the screen, not to mention storytelling. So can you imagine this novella being directed by Guillermo del Toro? I mean, that would be an amazing thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know that even even if he's covering an idea that's kind of uh, a little more on the just the, the pop end of the scale, mm-hmm. say Pacific Rim, um, which was a fun movie. Uh, but you Dialogue know, was terrible. <laughs> idea was great. The idea was great. The monsters, though, were, were the best part. And yeah. the robots were great, too. But but still, it was uh, it was art directed within an inch of its life. And you know you're going to get that <laughs> yeah. with Guillermo del Toro, the, yeah. no matter what the, the movie is like. And he... And, uh, and he, you know, he tends to have his sort of artsier pictures like Pan's Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he has his more action oriented pictures like Pacific Rim, like Blade 2, which, which I, I love as well. But yeah, you know, you're going to get something ama- amazing looking, some amazing cre- creative ideas in his work. And you see shades of Lovecraft resonating through a lot of what he does. Yeah, and um, what I think would be exciting is that perhaps Del Toro would be able to bring out the elements of science, the foundation of science that Lovecraft was writing on. Indeed, the the science of Lovecraft. Uh, that's a, the the topic of the podcast here today, because certainly we can't go through every story and talk about what was was incredible uh, about each one. We can't really dissect the man's uh, life in depth here. But one of the the interesting things about him is that he he did have this science background. He was a science enthusiast from a very early age. He was himself a science writer, wrote uh, multiple articles, a lot of it uh, on astronomy, published articles uh, about astronomy in, in the sciences, was very well read about the science, uh, scientific theories of the day. Again, uh, you know, Darwin's uh, natural selection, Einstein's relativity, uh, some of the, 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 uh, the, the sprinklings of quantum physics. Uh, in the day. So if you look at something like at the Mountains of Madness, you can really see the evidence of Lovecraft's training and understanding of various fields of science. And so it's really densely packed with information. And at first, I think it can be a little bit off-putting because it seems dry. But honestly, he gets in there and he starts to, to put these little ominous things in the text and really draw you in. So if anybody wants to read that novella, I urge you to, and just stay with it, because by the time you get to part two, you will be firmly ensconced in this world that he's built for you uh, with such fidelity and such detail that that's when I, I think one of the things about successful fiction that really pulls you in, the ability to really set the time and the place and the details. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a really incredible uh, tale in those respects, because it, it, you see the you see elements of geology, in it, you see elements of uh, evolutionary biology, and this this idea of uh, Antarctica is the, the the last unexplored region of the Earth, it, because the the story deals with uh, an Antarctic expedition uh, into the unknown, and in and in exploring the unknown, the investigators end up finding something more powerful and more troubling than they could have possibly imagined, and he really lays out this expedition in uh, in depth. To the point where, you know, you're reading it, you really buy into the idea that, oh, this is what it would take then to uh, to actually conduct this exploration in the early 20th century. Yeah, you are really seeing through the eyes of the narrator. And that's what I love about successful fiction and something even like uh, Virginia Woolf's Orlando. I was thinking these are starkly different texts, Mm -hmm. but they have the thing in common in which it is chock-a-block with detail that at first doesn't seem relevant. But then you're realizing these are people who are world building and trying to give you an understanding of this. So anyway, what did we do to uh, to talk about the science of Lovecraft? We went to. The expert. Yeah, that's right. Um, we turned to the world's foremost authority on H.P. Lovecraft, a man by the name of S.T. Joshi. 
In fact, if you've ever read any number of uh, weird fiction, pulp fiction, genre fiction anthologies, you've likely run across this man's name because he's he's, he's written tons of introductions. He's uh, to various anthologies. He's edited anthologies. Um, he's been researching, writing, restoring, and editing volumes of of research on Lovecraft and related authors since the early 1980s. He's also written pretty extensively on atheism and race relations as well. So we reached out to St. Joshi. He was gracious enough to uh, chat with us and discuss the science of Lovecraft. We're going to get to that interview after one quick break. All right, we're back. Let's get to the interview. Yes, we're going to talk with again with S.T. Joshi, the world's foremost authority on H.P. Lovecraft. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Joshi. Uh, my first question, in addition to writing all of these weird tales and, and ultimately influencing popular culture, Lovecraft was a science writer. Uh, tell us a little bit about Lovecraft, the science writer and science enthusiast. Sure. Um, it, you know, science really was one of Lovecraft's earliest interest uh, uh, starting even in, in his uh, childhood years uh, sure he uh, you know he read some weird fiction like Poe and, and the Brothers Grimm and uh, things like that when he was five or six or seven years old but by the time he was eight he had already discovered chemistry he became fascinated with chemistry uh, his mother bought him a chemistry set and he was uh, delighted to uh, make little experiments with it then at the age of Eleven, he discovered astronomy, and uh, later in life he says that that discovery of astronomy was perhaps the most significant influence uh, in his whole life uh, in terms of his philosophical attitude, because it opened up the the myriad worlds of of infinite space uh, and and directly led to that cosmic attitude that uh, really defined uh, both his philosophy and his fiction. Uh, and he did a lot of writing uh, at that time. Uh, first, he did these little handwritten uh, little booklets or magazines, as he called them. Uh, he had a, a paper called the Scientific Gazette that began as early as 1899. He was about nine years old. Uh, that focused on chemistry. Later on, after he discovered astronomy, he started something called the Rhode Island Journal of Astronomy uh, that came out usually uh, every week sometimes, then later every month. Uh, full of interesting matter about science uh, and, and astronomy and, and the stars. Uh, and among his first uh, published works were scientific uh, writings. Uh, as early as 1906, when he was uh, 16 years old, he began two separate astronomy columns uh, in uh, local newspapers in, in the Providence, Rhode Island area. Uh, and one of them kept on for uh, a couple of years. Uh, and still later on, around 1914, uh, he was 24, he, ha- he started another, another series of um, astronomy columns, monthly columns, telling people about you know, what they can expect to see in the course of the month in terms of planets and stars and constellations and, and other events like meteor showers and things like that. And that went on for another four and a half years. So his, his scientific writing, published and unpublished, is, is pretty significant. In your book, I Am Providence, The Life and Times of H.P. Lovecraft, you spend a good bit of time discussing Lovecraft's philosophy and metaphysics. So what inspired his worldview? Well, um, there's two major influences. Uh, uh, The philosophers of the 18th century, people like uh, Voltaire, Lametrie, and and others, who had pioneered the philosophy of materialism uh, and atheism. Lovecraft declared himself to be an atheist as early as the age of five, I think that's maybe a little too early, but uh, certainly by around 12, 13, he claimed to be quite a determined atheist. Uh, and the other major influence was uh, the scientific uh, writers and philosophers of the 19th century. Lovecraft was very well uh, attuned to the scientific discoveries uh, of, of the later 19th century. In particular, he was in- immensely influenced by Darwin's theory of evolution. He may not have actually read Darwin's uh, own writings, but he certainly read a lot of the writings of people like Thomas Henry Huxley, who was uh, Darwin's great proponent in England. He read a German philosopher and biologist named Ernst Haeckel, I believe that's how it's pronounced, H-A-E-C-K-E-L, who wrote a book called The Riddle of the Universe, 
this came out in German in 1899 and was translated the next year into English. Uh, and that was a hugely influential book for Lovecraft's thinking because it laid out a purely materialistic and purely atheistic view of the cosmos. And that was tremendously influential to Lovecraft's thinking. It's easy to read the works of Lovecraft and simply lose yourself in the supernatural wonder uh, of the stories. I, uh, Lord knows I did when I first read his work back in high school. But Lovecraft lived and, uh, and, and wrote in a time of great change. To what extent did World War I and new advancements in uh, relativity and quantum theory affect his personal philosophy and his fiction? Well, it's funny. Uh, Lovecraft started writing weird fiction as a teenager. He wrote some some juvenile stories, that's a few of which still survive. Uh, they're not bad. They're 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 interesting to show his development, but they're they're pretty minor. Uh, then he gave up writing for a while uh, and started again in 1917, right in the middle of the war, just before America's entry into the war. But he was following that conflict very carefully because, as a devoted uh, Anglophile, he was very much enamored of England. Uh, and was a great devotee of the British Empire. He wanted America to enter the war on the side of, of uh, what he called his blood brothers across the sea. Um, uh, that that whole period was was uh, really troubling to Lovecraft. He actually attempted to enlist, not in the army as such, but in the uh, Rhode Island National Guard, uh, and actually got enrolled momentarily, but then his mother pulled some strings and had him uh, withdrawn from there. But that very, one of the first stories he wrote was called Dagon, uh, which is set in, in the war. It takes place uh, on the sea uh, after a, uh, uh, a presumably a British uh, soldier uh, uh, is captured by the Germans uh, on a boat and then escapes uh, on a rowboat and then uh, uh, encounters these, this, these, uh, this uh, horrible creature uh, in the ocean. But you can see how that war setting uh, plays a, the critical role in that story. But, but more critical there is the fact that, that that story is really based on, not so much on science, but on some conjectural ex- advance of science. That is to say, what Lovecraft is postulating there is the discovery of an alien species lurking beneath the ocean. There's really nothing supernatural in that particular story. Uh, that story could actually have occurred. It's realistic in the sense of depicting its, its topography and the basic events in a very realistic manner. So Lovecraft, uh, in the course of his career, danced between the supernatural and what might be called quasi-science fiction. He really was a kind of uh, proto-science fiction writer right from the beginning of his career. And in terms of, of, of things like relativity, he was tremendously affected by the Einstein theory of relativity, uh, which he came upon first around 1920 or thereabouts, and then by 1923, uh, the theory had really been confirmed by various experiments, uh, and he was forced to accept it. Uh, I say forced to accept it because the theory, of course, really shook up the foundations of 19th century science, the, 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 the rather cocksure materialism uh, of writers like Huxley and, and, and others uh, of that period. Uh, and Lovecraft went through a period of turmoil where he had to uh, wrestle with uh, theor- theories of relativity, with quantum theory, with uh, uh, and later the, the theories of, of uh, Heisenberg, uh, and still try to maintain a basically materialist uh, point of view. And I think he successfully did it in the end, uh, but it, it, it really did affect his writing throughout the course of the 1920s. In the canon of Lovecraft stories, um, which stories do you think stand out as employing science the most effectively, especially for the time period? Well, two two stand out in my mind, and in my judgment, they actually are among his best stories, if not the very best. At the Mountains of Madness, uh, this is a short novel written in 1931, but it draws upon uh, his fascination with the Antarctic, going all the way back to when he was about 10 years old. Uh, he had become fascinated with Antarctic exploration, because right around that time, around 1900 or thereabouts, uh, there was a whole new wave of scientific exploration uh, that Lovecraft kept up on, uh, with people like uh, you know Scott and Amundsen and, and a number of these other explorers, and it fascinated him. Uh, and for years he wanted to write a novel uh, or, or a story about the Antarctic because really uh, that continent was perhaps the last genuinely unknown terrain it left in the world. Uh, I mean, some of his other stories are set in the wilds of Africa or the Middle East, uh, but Antarctica at that time was, was really almost untouched. And so it allowed 
a vast uh, uh, expanse of, of uh, uh, imagination uh, unfettered by reality or or, uh, or what was known about about uh, that area at the time. So finally, around 1930, 31, he took up his pen and wrote this incredibly detailed short novel about Antarctica. Uh, but it becomes much more than just a just an Antarctic novel. It becomes a cosmic narrative uh, detailing the 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 advent to this planet of an alien species that established itself on Antarctica, to be sure, uh, millions of years ago, but also throughout the world, uh, and engaged in battles with other species and finally died out. Uh, it's a tremendous historical panorama that really takes the entire universe as its backdrop rather than just, just the Earth. In a very similar way, a, a still later uh, novella called The Shadow Out of Time uh, does much the same thing. Uh, here again, uh, this one is set chiefly in Australia, in the in the uh, Australian desert. Again, a, a relatively unknown area at the time, uh, and again depicts a, 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 an alien species that comes to the Earth. But in this case, the alien species has not come physically; it has come mentally. That is to say, uh, it has perfected uh, the the ability to exchange its minds with the minds of other creatures uh, over time. Uh, they can send their minds forward through through time and inhabit the bodies of other creatures. Uh, and the, the, the narrator of that story, uh, uh, a, a professor uh, from Miskatonic University, experiences uh, a mental or psychic possession by one of these uh, alien, alien creatures. Uh, again, a great deal of scientific erudition is incorporated into that story. Biology, physics, geology, uh, anthropology, paleontology. It is, it is definitely a science fiction story. In fact, both those stories, uh, Mountains of Madness and The Shadow of Time, were published in a science fiction pulp magazine, Astounding Stories. Reading his work, it, it really seems like he was a man at the top of his talent right up until illness overcame him. What was the trajectory of his work? Uh, what, what more would we have likely seen from Lovecraft? Uh, what were his long-term plans with his fiction? Lovecraft started out, as I mentioned, writing stories in the late teens, beginning 1917, uh, and then died in 1937. So his career was really very short, as as far as fiction writers go, less than 20 years, really speaking. And in that period, he wrote only about 60 stories, of which maybe three are short novels. There are several novellas uh, and other short stories. So he really wrote no full-scale novel. Um, but throughout that whole period, in the first 10 years of his life, he basically alternated, as I mentioned, between fairly conventional supernaturalism and uh, a sort of budding uh, uh, interest in, in science, science fiction, or, or rather in the, in the scientific justification uh, or uh, accountability of his supernatural creations. 1926 was a central year for Lovecraft because that's when he wrote The Call of Cthulhu. Uh, that's the first story in what later came to be called the Cthulhu Mythos. He never used that term, by the way. That was a, a term invented by uh, uh, one of his editors, but nevertheless, it's a convenient term to use for this uh, pseudo-mythology that he devised and that dominated the, the, the last decade of his writing. But as what we see in that decade, uh, from 1926 up to his death, is that he wrote fewer stories but much longer ones. He required a larger and larger canvas to convey his ideas. The short story was no longer adequate to his purposes. He wanted to write novellas and short novels of 30, 40, 50, 100 pages um, because he needed that expanse to, to uh, uh, get across the precision and detail that that dominated his later work. And, of course, that later work is also dominated by, by this interest in science. Uh, I, I should have mentioned another key story in, in this evolution called The Color Out of Space, which many people, including himself, thought might have been his the very best story he wrote from a purely artistic point of view. Uh, that story also appeared in a science fiction magazine, Amazing Stories, uh, and deals with a meteorite that bear, that, that apparently contains some very bizarre creatures that cause a kind of withering of the of the landscape where this meteor lands. Uh, a tremendously atmospheric piece that that uh, one critic uh, felt anticipated the effects of atomic radiation. Uh, of course, that's uh, purely accidental, but nevertheless, it gets to the idea of the uh, scientific uh, elements uh, underpinning that story. 
the problem with Lovecraft is that his later work, uh, these long novellas, tended to be uh, unsuitable for publication in the pulp magazines. They were so far beyond what conventional pulp editors uh, wanted that they, many of them were rejected. At the Mountains of Madness was rejected by Weird Tales, uh, the pulp magazine that had up to that time published most of his stories, because the editor felt it was simply <laughs> probably beyond the power of his readers to understand it, uh, and that it couldn't be easily divided into sections and things like that. And Lovecraft took these rejections very hard uh, and actually ended up writing less and less with the passage of time. I mean, and, and lost confidence in his work if he had lived on beyond 1937, I think his work would have become still more scientific and probably would have, he probably would have written full-length full novels, uh, perhaps for paperback publishers or, or science fiction magazines. The problem with Lovecraft in his time was that his work was not really suited to the markets that would accept him. The mainstream markets were simply not interested in this kind of work. They had de determined that any kind of fantasy or horror or science fiction was somehow sub-literary, so he was not going to get published in places like uh, Saturday Evening Post or Atlantic Monthly or Harper's. Uh, he had to publish in the pulp magazines, and even they started rejecting his work because, again, it just went beyond their formulaic conceptions. If Marcus had emerged in Lovecraft later in Lovecraft, you know, in, in the 40s uh, that might have accommodated Lovecraft's work, he probably would have done very well. Now, if we can go back for a second, how does how does one pronounce the name of the entity Cthulhu? Yes, yes. Well, uh, the pronunciation you just gave is, has become pretty standard, but Lovecraft declares in a letter of 1934 to some friend of his that the pr pronunciation is actually only two syllables, the T-H is not pronounced as a TH, it's pronounced as a kind of guttural L. Uh, he actually renders it as C-L-U-L-U, clue-lu, and you have to sort of cough or bark it out. A lot of people don't pronounce it that way because it, it seems uh, counterintuitive to do so, but nevertheless, that is how he apparently pronounced it. But of course he says, well, you know, this word, this name, is not meant to be pronounced by human vocal cords, so no human could ever give anything but an approximate pronunciation of it. That's actually kind of comforting to me, given how, how commercial Cthulhu has become. I mean, you see see it on T-shirts and in the form of plush dolls. Well, yes, there's been a tremendous commercialization of Cthulhu and, and, a, and a sort of a, a expansion of, of that, that name and that concept into the uh, popular culture. Uh, I dare say Lovecraft would have been amused by it, but, uh, and if it, you know, if it brings more attention to Lovecraft, uh, well and good. Uh, the funny thing is that Tlulu, the entity, is actually a fairly minor god or creature in the entire panoply of Lovecraft's uh, pseudo-mythology. There are much more powerful entities uh, in his uh, stories than that, and Tlulu only figures really in one story, the call of Tlulu. Uh, you have other entities like Yogg-Sothoth and Azathoth and Nihilathotep and Shubnugarath and all these other creatures uh, who actually are, in many ways are more interesting uh, and certainly are more powerful in the narratives in which they appear, but they don't have quite the cachet of Tulu, so they, they don't get quite the attention. Why do you think that is? Why has Cthulhu become such a pop culture darling? Well, I think the name has something to do with it. It is such a bizarre name uh, that, that it, you know, and as we've just discovered, nobody really knows how to pronounce it. Nobody can pronounce it really correctly. Um, it, it has a, a sort of magic aura to it that uh, people apparently find fascinating. I will say that the term Clulu Mythos was coined by August Derleth. Now, that, he was Lovecraft's uh, posthumous editor uh, and his friend. He corresponded with Lovecraft over about a 10-year period. Um, and he felt that that term was appropriate to designate those stories that used this uh, mythology because it was in the Call of Cthulhu that the uh, uh, mythology was first expounded uh, in a detailed way. Some people feel that that, that term is misleading but precisely because uh, Tulu is not really the major entity, but because Derleth sort of gave the stamp of approval to it and because he himself was Lovecraft's publisher for many years, that term uh, eventually uh, caught on, first in a sort of limited way among Lovecraft devotees, and then uh, when Lovecraft uh, became hugely popular in the 1970s, the term then just took off. 
In your book, I believe you mentioned that Lovecraft referred to this mythos as as Yog Sothery. Yog Sothery, yes. He never he never gave it a name. Uh, in fact, Durleth, writing to Lovecraft in 1931, uh, suggested, "Why don't you call this the mythology of Hastur?" A name we don't even know if it's an entity or a place or whatever uh, mentioned once in Lovecraft in in the Whisper and Darkness. Uh, and in fact, that name is borrowed uh, from Robert W. Chambers, who wrote The King in Yellow, and who himself borrowed it from Ambrose Bierce. Uh, and Lovecraft said, well, you know, that, that name doesn't really uh, convey what I wanted to convey. Uh, but he never determined on a name for this, uh, this whole mythology himself. He, he yeah, whimsically called it Yogg's at one point, but it shows that, that he was not concerned with, with naming it. Uh, and he also was not concerned in mapping it out precisely. This mythology evolved uh, very radically in the course of his uh, last ten years of his life uh, and changed significantly from, from one story to the other. He was, did not feel bound to be necessarily consistent uh, in referring to these names or entities from one story to the other. Uh, and, and that drove some later uh, writers and critics crazy because they wanted that kind of consistency. But Lovecraft realized that, that you know, to make it too consistent, too specific, would, would rob it of its, of its uh, uh, power uh, as an imaginative stimulant. Uh, it had to remain mysterious and unknown and covert. For our listeners and readers interested in horror, what summer reading selections would you recommend? <laughs> There's so many. Um, I, when I first got into Lovecraft, uh, I became interested in some of the writers that he liked uh, and was influenced by. He was very well read in the field of supernatural or weird fiction. In fact, he wrote a little treatise about it called Supernatural Horror and Literature, which itself is worth reading uh, as a very interesting historical account uh, of, of, of that field from you know, the dawn of literature uh, up to his own day. And he was tremendously influenced by writers as diverse as Arthur Mackin, the great Welsh writer of horror fiction, who, who really wrote uh, mostly in the 1890s uh, and wrote some tremendously powerful work uh, about about uh, horrible creatures on the underside of civilization, and that that was a tremendous influence on Lovecraft. Uh, he was uh, Lovecraft was very taken with the fantasy writer Lord Dunsany, the Irish writer who wrote tales of fantasy uh, in an imaginary world setting. Uh, not horror at all, really speaking, but but beautiful works of fantasy. Uh, I myself have a great admiration for Dunsany, and I think he was one of the one of the great writers of our field. Uh, Algernon Blackwood, the English writer, wrote uh, stories like The Willows, which Lovecraft thought was the best story, best weird tale ever written. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure he's wrong about that. A tremendously atmospheric piece about uh, these two uh, people who sail down the Danube in a canoe and encounter bizarre creatures along the way. And of course, his great American predecessors, Edgar Allan Poe and Ambrose Bierce, are always worth reading. And some writers subsequent to Lovecraft have done some tremendous work. I just mentioned Caitlin Kiernan. I think she is perhaps the leading writer of weird fiction of her generation. A tremendously talented writer, both in the short story and in the novel. An older writer, uh, although still working, is Ramsey Campbell, the British writer, who started writing Lovecraft pastiches in the 1960s, but then evolved into a, uh, a really profound writer of weird fiction with volumes like Demons by Daylight and, and uh, Waking Nightmares. Uh, you can't go wrong by reading anything of Campbell's. He is always on the top of his game. In terms of science fiction, what volumes might our listeners seek out for the sort of less-known sci-fi wonders? I've been interested in how Lovecraft may have influenced some later science fiction writers, but the evidence is fairly scant, uh, but some writers do come to mind. Uh, Fritz Leiber, who, who wrote science fiction, fantasy, and horror, did correspond with Lovecraft for just about a year, right at the end of Lovecraft's life. And, and after that, and he was clearly was was hugely influenced by that that uh, that association. Um, and in fact, he, he admits later on that Lovecraft and Shakespeare were his two great influences in terms of the development of his early writing. Uh, and and one of the first books that Liber published was a short story collection called uh, Knight's Black Agents, uh, which had some great great stories in it. Uh, several of which were were significantly influenced by Lovecraft, but at the same time remain uh, really original uh, contributions. 
Leiber then wrote this uh, short uh, novel uh, called Conjure Wife, uh, which is about witchcraft in the modern day, and that that bears some Lovecraft influence. Uh, he, uh, Lovecraft wrote a story called The Dreams in the Witch House, which talks about a witch who, who develops these uh, uh, scientific powers uh, and, and possibly uh, transports herself into the fourth dimension, and I think Liber picked up some clues uh, from that. Uh, there has been some influence of Lovecraft apparently on Arthur C. Clarke uh, and Philip K. Dick. Uh, uh, some some recent scholarship has uh, uh, investigated that uh, that influence. So that's all very interesting to me. Now, for listeners who are interested in checking out your own work, uh, what do you have coming out in the immediate future that uh, our readers and listeners might want to check out? Well, um, I was happy to compile a volume called American Supernatural Tales uh, back in 2007 for Penguin Classics. This is this was a an anthology of of. Uh, trying to give a sense of the history of supernatural writing in this country, starting with Washington Irving at the early 19th century and going all the way up to, to the present day. In fact, I think Caitlin Kiernan was the last author I included, but I certainly have writers like uh, Poe and Pierce and Robert W. Chambers and Lovecraft and uh, uh, um, Mary Wilkins Freeman and uh, Edith Wharton, Henry James, uh, and all the way up to people like Ray Bradbury, Richard Matheson, uh, and a number of others. Uh, I think that was a pretty good uh, piece of work. And that that book, along with, uh, was one of the books that was reprinted in a series that Penguin reprinted under the title, under the series title, uh, uh, Penguin Horror, which had a long introduction by Guillermo del Toro. Uh, and those books are worth getting just for his introduction. Del Toro has a tremendous feel uh, for horror and a tremendous knowledge of the, the whole range of horror fiction, early and, and recent. Um, and he's written a very long introduction to that book uh, and to the other books in that series. Um, I just completed a history of supernatural fiction, starting with Gilgamesh and going up to, to today. Uh, that, was, that came out in two volumes uh, a year or two ago uh, under the title Unutterable Horror, uh, and it's going to come out in paperback uh, later this summer. Uh, I'm working on yet another new edition of Lovecraft. Uh, uh, I should explain that one of the first things I did as a Lovecraft scholar back when I was uh, in my 20s, actually, and even even a little earlier than that, when I was at Brown University as an undergraduate, at Brown University, uh, the library holds Lovecraft's, uh, most of Lovecraft's papers and manuscripts, and as I investigated those, I found that the standard editions of Lovecraft stories, as published by Arkham House uh, and, and, and in paperback, were full of errors. Textual errors, typographical errors, whatnot. And I spent years cleaning up those texts, and, and I produced new editions of Lovecraft using corrected text in the 1980s. And I've been sort of tinkering with those editions ever since, but I'm going to do a new edition now in which all the textual variants are actually listed. That's what it's called a variorum edition. And I think it's very interesting uh, to see how Lovecraft stories were sort of mangled by by magazines and and, and book publishers in the course of of their of their literary life. Uh, so that's coming out in three volumes from a publisher called Hippocampus Press. Uh, and I'm doing some interesting work for a specialty press in Colorado called Centipede Press. I've started what is called a library of weird fiction, in which each of these volumes are large collections of. The, the the best writings of major horror writers like Blackwood, like uh, Mackin, like William Hope Hodgson, a great British writer who's now coming into his own, uh, and Lovecraft and Poe. I believe those are the first volumes of that series, uh, and I intend to do many more uh, volumes of that sort. And and that gives readers a a, a comprehensive view of the the major writings of these uh, of these figures. So that wraps up our interview with S.T. Joshi, and uh, I definitely want to check out that anthology because it's got that history of supernatural writing. I mean, everybody from Poe, Chase, Lovecraft, of course, uh, Edith Wharton, Henry James, Richard Matheson, also Joyce Carol Oates and Caitlin Kiernan. So if anybody's interested in that, I think that would be, this seems like a really great place to start uh, for a foundation in sci-fi and horror. 
Indeed, indeed. I know that uh, after the interview, I was uh, adding some items to my uh, uh, to my Kindle list online. So <laughs> stuff that I ha- I haven't checked out yet that I, I really must. So I've already taken some time to discuss my history with Lovecraft's work and, uh, and some of the stories that that I'm particularly fond of. Uh, you have uh, discussed your your initial immersion into the world of H.P. Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. But uh, here at the, at the How Stuff Works uh, office, we have uh, actually several co-workers who are really into Lovecraft's work that have been really inspired by it and are big fans. So we reached out to a few of them to share their personal favorite uh, tales uh, from Lovecraft's uh, canon, uh, as, as well as some, some other thoughts on the man. So, uh, so let's hear from some of our co-workers. Hi there, this is Josh Clark, co-host of uh, the Stuff You Should Know podcast, and the Lovecraft story that I picked is called The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. Not only is it my favorite Lovecraft story, it may be my favorite work of all horror fiction of all time. Back in 1927, Lovecraft wrote a lengthy essay, kind of a treatise on what horror is, called Supernatural Horror in Literature. And in it, he essentially chronicles what's made us humans afraid, from the Druids' fertility rites to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein to the writers of his day, like Algernon Blackwood, who, if you're not familiar with him, will surely delight you when you settle down finally to read one of his haunted house stories. Perhaps because supernatural horror in literature is so dense and even scholarly, I've never done more than skim it, by the way, the best-known line is the first sentence. The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. You could put that on a t-shirt. You know, it's kind of a funny thesis for Lovecraft in particular to have, because if ever there was a writer who paid out in his introduction just about everything you needed to know about what's going to take place in the rest of the story, it was Howard Phillips Lovecraft. He loved to tease his readers, always, in every work, giving away everything at the beginning, And when you read him, you get the sense almost that he believes he still maintains control over the secret information to follow. But you continue reading anyway, even though you know what's coming. You generally know how things will turn out, what eldritch cosmic horror will be at work, whether it's going to be witchcraft, the old ones, Cthulhu, vampires, fish people, whatever. And usually, who will die? And yet, Lovecraft is such a great author that he doesn't need that mystery. He has imagination in the details, and he makes you want to bathe in the tissue he uses to fill in the skeleton he constructs in the introduction of his stories. And this is the case with Charles Dexter Ward. The reader has a pretty good idea of what weird thing will befall the protagonist chapters before Lovecraft reveals the horrible truth in his characteristic mounting flourish. And even when the truth is finally revealed, the cosmic horrors of the fairly pedestrian variety, at least as far as Lovecraft goes, But still, the case of Charles Dexter Ward sucks you into every one of its 51,000 words. It has it all. It's perhaps as close to a made-for-film story as Lovecraft's ever created. And he is notoriously unfilmable, as is evidenced by most of the attempts to adapt his stories into film prove. The story has a gumshoe family physician, historical investigation, a massed mob of local toughs, simultaneous action scenes taking place as the climax mounts. It has everything. I could go on, of course, but I wouldn't want to give away too much of the story. I'd just say, read the case of Charles Dexter Ward, and you will be entertained. Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class, and I love Lovecraft. Uh, One of my very favorites is uh, The Color Out of Space, and this was a short story that Lovecraft wrote right after he finished The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, so this was in 1927. And uh, one of the things that really makes this singular, particularly for the time, is that Lovecraft wanted to create an alien uh, entity in a book that was not humanoid in form. They didn't look like humans. We don't understand them. They are truly alien in every way. And the story never, you know, really uh, conveys to the reader what the goals or the intent of this extraterrestrial entity are, which makes it sort of really fascinating. And what really ends up being portrayed is sort of how this rural community deals with a completely 
incomprehensible thing that they just they have no way to define what it is or comprehend what it is. They're just sort of dealing with it and fearful of it. And, you know, it's told in that layered form that he often uses where there's a narrator who is a professional who goes looking for this story about this place, uh, which is in the in Massachusetts, uh, outside of Arkham. And, you know, he finds this elderly gentleman who is the only one that knows the tale. And so it's it's layered in terms of who is telling the narrative. And it's just a really beautiful story of sort of the creepiness of people learning to cope with a thing that they have no tools to cope with. And that is why I love it so. Hey there, this is Jonathan Strickland with the Tech Stuff Podcast. And when I was approached late one eldritch evening by a gibbering blab of stuff that I couldn't identify, nor would my brain allow me to think on for more than a second before going totally mad... I realized that I needed to talk about my favorite Lovecraft story, At the Mountains of Madness. Now, I'm a big fan of Cthulhu in general, and that character was introduced in The Call of Cthulhu short story. But we get to hear a little bit more about Cthulhu's followers in At the Mountains of Madness, and it helps set up the elements that would become the cornerstone of the Cthulhu mythos, which a lot of writers have built on over the years. This is stuff that Lovecraft kind of established, but didn't really... um, flesh out until other writers came along and added to it. So some of the elements include the introduction of the Elder Ones. Now, Lovecraft was fascinated with this idea of ancient races that came to Earth well before humans ever evolved, and they ruled the planet for eons before we showed up. In this case, the Elder Ones are pretty much the oldest of the versions that we get, because uh, you've got Ancient Ones, you have Old Ones, and then Elder Ones pretty easy to to confuse. In this case, you actually get some backstory about the fact that these Elder Ones had conflicts with other ancient entities, these Cthulhu spawn, because you have this Antarctic expedition that uncovers evidence of a, a society of these Elder Ones and their hieroglyphs that tell the story about their conflict with the Cthulhu spawn, as well as other elements that, that show up in the Cthulhu mythos. So while the story itself is is fascinating, what I really love about it is that it became this jumping off point for all these other authors to kind of add to this mythology and expand it. And you get lots of references to classic Lovecraft elements, things like Miskatonic University and the Necronomicon and Cthulhu and Shoggoths and all of this kind of weird stuff that together has created this rich mythology. So if you have not read At the Mountains of Madness, you should definitely check that out. Also, keep your fingers crossed because Guillermo del Toro has been trying to make a movie version based off this novella for years. Uh, From what I understand, he's going to make one more attempt because all of his tries previously have fallen short, and he he really wants to make this, so he wants to make one more try at making it. And if that happens, we're going to have some pretty mind-bending stuff to watch. So I'm holding out hope. You should, too. Hi, I'm Christian Sager. I write and host shows like Brain Stuff and Stuff of Genius here at How Stuff Works. And I also write comic books in the horror genre. And one thing that people like to talk about in horror, especially supernatural horror, is that they categorize it into three areas. Stephen King in particular does this in his book Dance Macabre about how horror literature is written. And you see it in a lot of literary criticism as well. And the idea is that these three areas can be narrowed down to the vampire, the thing without a name, which is often Frankenstein or the werewolf. But when literary criticism like this talks about horror, it often leaves out H.P. Lovecraft's great contribution, which is cosmic horror, which does not fall into any of these three categories. Basically, the idea is that we as human beings like to think of ourselves as important. We like to think that we're at the top of the food chain, but maybe we're not. Maybe there's something out there that's bigger than us and we're insignificant. So I'm going to talk about the Lovecraft story, The Shadow Out of Time, and I'm going to talk about it in conjunction with this really interesting book about H.P. Lovecraft called Lovecraft Against the World Against Life, and it's by Michelle Welbeck, who is like a French postmodern author. 
Briefly, I'm going to summarize the Shadow Out of Time. Uh, in it, a man forgets everything that's happened to him for the last five years. And during that time, he seems to have been possessed by some kind of consciousness that isn't his own. This consciousness seems to be seeking out occult knowledge the entire time that it's in possession of his body. And when he regains his identity, he starts dreaming about these weird, intelligent creatures that live in these giant underground cities that have been collecting knowledge across space and time basically forever. He locates one of these cities. He actually finds it beneath Australia. And he finds evidence that, first of all, that he was possessed by one of these creatures from across time. And second, that the creatures that lived there themselves were actually killed off by another even more powerful and terrifying species of monster. And these later monsters, he discovers, are still alive somewhere beneath the earth. So that's the basic gist of The Shadow Out of Time. The things that are really interesting about it thematically that tie into cosmic horror, the idea that your mind and your body are not your own and that they've been displaced, you know, across time and space. Uh, even the, 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 the creatures that do this, they're called Yithians in, in the story. Whatever killed them is still here. Even they are not, uh, fully invulnerable to, you know, the horrors of the universe. Uh, and if we're nothing to them, then how insignificant would we be to their enemies? The human race basically disappears at the end of this story. The idea is that they will be destroyed and Earth will, you know, be home to a new set of uh, monsters. Welbeck looks into this and he says, if other beings existed, we would be like rabbits to them. He actually says, like, we would basically be either food or even worse, they would kill us simply for fun, the same way that we do for small animals. Possibly the best case scenario is that they would dissect us. Here's a quote from The Shadow Out of Time that I think really ties into the cosmic horror thing. Man must be prepared to accept notions of the cosmos and of his own place in the seething vortex of time, whose merest mention is paralyzing. Now, Welbeck looks at this and he says... Lovecraft's whole thing is that everything disappears. Humans are basically as important as the elementary particles of the universe. Everything is essentially just electrons. Even these monstrous entities that travel through time and space and are able to mess with this one man's life so importantly. Um, it's their discovery that, you know, his discovery really, that he has no power to affect any change in the vast, huge, incomprehensible universe all around him. And that in itself it can be way more terrifying than a vampire or a werewolf or Frankenstein. In The Shadow of Time, there's constant reference to this vast library of knowledge that the Yithians have. It's far beyond anything we as human beings could comprehend. And the narrator actually like remembers through dreams and nightmares this vast knowledge that he was able to tap into while he was possessed. And what's interesting about this is that it also ties into the cosmic horror thing in that it looks at human beings as being particularly insignificant in the larger scheme of intergalactic existence. Perhaps we're just a small species that's projecting our own, you know, mental identity onto the universe, but really we're just susceptible to being wiped out at any moment. Welbeck looks at this as well, and he says that H.P. Lovecraft hated realism. For Lovecraft, the real world was too much. And Welbeck even goes so far as to say that for most of us that read any fiction at all, we do not love life. He says that there's a comfort to reading Lovecraft if you're sick of the real world, if you're sick of life. And I think that that's really interesting. I don't know if I'd go that far, but it's kind of fascinating. There's something beautifully zen about this idea, too, that that the world is too much for us, so we turn to this uh, fantastic horror that's created in order to sort of balance ourselves again in our place in the universe. There's a letter to Belknap Long that H.P. Uh, Lovecraft wrote, and Welbeck actually got to take a look at it. And in it, he wrote to Long, he said, I do not think any realism is beautiful. So it's pretty well confirmed that he was not into the real world at all. He wasn't into materialism. He was. Uh, he lived his life through his stories. Uh, so, yeah, that's the gist of it. Uh, the Shadow of Time, I think, is a great look at the importance of how 
Lovecraft uses cosmic horror to show human insignificance in the genre. Uh, and that supernatural horror isn't just those three genres. Those are great genres, and, and we've gotten lots of stories and films out of them. But Lovecraft has really made a great contribution to the genre uh, by you know creating this whole well of stories. And there was an entire group of writers that worked with Lovecraft, and even after he passed away, ended up writing stories within his own mythos to, to keep this theme going. So we may like to think of ourselves as important. We may like to think of ourselves as being at the top of the food chain. But stop and think about it for a knot. What if we weren't? All right. So there you have it. Some some good stuff there. Uh, Some some solid recommendations uh, from our fellow house stuff workers. And thanks again to ST Joshi for taking the time to uh, speak with us. And if you guys are interested in finding out more about his works and his writings, you can go to stjoshi.org. Indeed. And then, you know, you can also always just go to Amazon, throw in ST Joshi, and you can see all the various works that he's, uh, he's been involved in, either as an editor or just uh, supplying a very informative introduction. So uh, there you have it, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, the science writer as well as the horror and science fiction writer. Um, I thought it was pretty fascinating, uh, and uh, thanks, well, thanks, Julie, for letting me uh, explore this in an episode. Thank you for the immersion. I know, I'm really, I'm really excited. This has definitely whetted my appetite for our summer reading. Yeah. Um, and that's going to be coming up in a future episode in which we will recommend some books and we'll have some other staff recommendations as well. That's right. It's a summer tradition. So look for that in the weeks ahead. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out more of our content, uh, be sure to visit stufftoblowyourmind.com. As always, that is the mothership. Uh, that is where you'll find all of our blog posts, all of our videos, all of our, all of our episodes, everything that we do. Uh, and there, uh, if you do a search for Lovecraft in the search bar, you'll find, uh, various blog posts, uh, that I've, uh, uh written over the years that at least slightly involve, uh, the man and his work. Um, check us out on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. And, uh, you know, there's an old-fashioned way of getting in touch with us as well. That's right. You can send us an email, and you can do that at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 